I would invite with you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3. If you would bear with me this morning as... <clears throat> A couple days ago, I had a tooth extracted. Happened to be my wisdom tooth, the last one I had. If the uh, sermon significantly lacks wisdom today, you will know why. And if it goes off the trail or off the track somewhere along the way, uh, it's not the tooth, it's the medication. So, um, in either case, we trust that God is bigger than those things. But. Uh, I'm going to try to stay sedate as much as I can and stick to my notes here. We have before us um, a remarkable text, um, uh, John chapter 1. We're going to begin to look at verses 1 through 15 uh, and see if we can plow our way through this. I I will say at the outset of this, um, this text is deep and it's rich. We could, uh, if we so chose, spend several weeks just mining out all of the things that are in this text. It is very theological. It deals with one of the critical areas of theology that we must understand. I'm going to try and break that down today. Um, However, uh, what I would like to do is plow through that part relatively quickly, plow through the story that Jesus gives us, the narrative relatively quickly, and I want to get to the heart of the application of this text. Um, because I think that is what's critical for us. I think it is what John has recorded this story for. I don't think that John's purpose in recording this event is for us to have a systematic theology course. I don't think that's what he intends. I think John has been very, very clear about what his intentions are for writing not only this text, but really everything that he's recorded in the book And I think it's worth repeating just about every week, just so that we keep ourselves on track. John says in chapter 20, verse 31 of this book that he writes, um, Jesus did, beginning in verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's purpose is applicational. His goal is that you might believe in Christ and then in believing you might find eternal life. That is what John is after. And so we must understand this text that John has recorded for us in light of that purpose. John has given us this story not just so that we can meditate on theology, but so that we might be moved toward Christ. So that we might understand what it is to believe in Christ truly. And so that we might do so and in doing so find eternal life. That is what John's after. And so I'm going to avoid my, try to avoid my, my own particular magnetism towards digging into the theology of it. And try and stay like an arrow onto the application. Answering the question, what does John want us to know about what it means to be a Christian? What a Christian is? And how this works out in our life. Because it is the most foundational question that any human being must sort out. And what we're going to be confronted with in this man that we're going to see introduced to Jesus today is a man who is excessively religious, incredibly astute theologically, a leader in the church of his day. And at the same time, Jesus is going to quickly identify him as outside the kingdom of God. And as we see this encounter unfold, we're going to see Jesus literally shock this man to the core of his, of his being. 
And what shocks him to the core of his being, I trust that if we hear it today loud and clear, if by the help of the Holy Spirit it comes through, it translates from the text into our minds and into our hearts, it will also shock us with equal magnitude. But we must listen and God must help us. So let's look at the text and then let's work our way through it. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. John says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless he is, or one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. The way I've got this outlined for us this morning, uh, just if you'd like to take notes and kind of want to trek through, just simply four points. We'll try to get through them all. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. It begins with a a very religious man and his very simple question. Um, It goes from the religious man and his simple question to the righteous Savior and his shocking answer, which we're going to see. And then it goes back to the religious man and his really stunning response. um, And then back to the Savior and his saving sacrifice. So that's kind of the way we're going to take this. uh, Verses 1 and 2, then that chunk 3 through 8, 9 through 12, and, and so on. And so I want to dive right in. And I want to tell you, this is so critical. Um, it is impossible to, to fully, well, what Jesus is going to lay out to this man is so foundational to being a Christian. I'm not sure that you can be a Christian without understanding it. Let me just say it that clearly. It's that, it's that simple. And yet it's not easy. And it's not hard to swallow once you see it. But let's trek along with Nicodemus and let's go on the ride with him. Let's be shocked with him. And let's marvel at what Christ says. That's the goal this morning. Uh, we're first introduced in verses 1 and 2 to this religious man and his very simple question. It just tells us there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This is the first we hear of this man, Nicodemus. It's not the last we'll hear of him. It's the first we hear of him. And when we're done with talking about Nicodemus in this text this morning, we're going to walk away from Nicodemus and we're going to leave him as a lost man who has rejected Christ. That's how this thing is going to end for this man in our text. 
thankfully, by the grace of God, that is not how it ends for this man ultimately. We won't get to how this ends up for him ultimately for quite some time because we see him recur again in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He leaves this encounter with Jesus, a lost man, but we see him at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as a saved man. So something happens between this encounter and that moment that changes everything for Nicodemus. But what we see today is a man who does not get it, a man who encounters Christ and rejects what he hears, a man who walks away outside the kingdom of God and shocked to the core. That's this man Nicodemus. We're told a couple of very quick things about him. We're told that he's a man of the Pharisees. We just did a study on the book of Acts, so we've talked about the Pharisees really at length. Um, They were the religious scholars of their day. They largely came from the middle class. They had incredibly large and significant influence with the people. They were the religious scholars of their day. They were the experts at the Old Testament. They were the experts at the law. They, They knew these things. They had studied these things. They had given their lives to the study of the Old Testament and to the teaching of the Old Testament. And they were zealous, extremely zealous for the Old Testament law. Extremely zealous to the point where they had taken what God had prescribed for his people and had expanded it and applied it to every nuance of, of human life. And, and, and they enforced the word of God on the people. But we see in the Gospels as Jesus encounters these men, he identifies a glaring problem with them. They are experts on the Old Testament but they are men whose hearts are unchanged. Their hearts are not with God. They have all of the... Jesus is going to chide them along the way. If you follow through the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus encounters them and He chides them. He calls them things like whitewashed tombs. What is a whitewashed tomb? Well, it looks pretty where? On the outside, but on the inside it's full of death. That's what He calls them. He talks about them being cups that are washed on the outside, but not on the inside. And the whole thing is that their religion, their faith, has become something that is completely external. It's all about rules. It's all about rituals. It's all about behaviors. And it is completely disconnected from what's going on in the heart. On the outside, they're very moral. On the outside, they're very religious. They're church people. They know the Bible. They can have theological debate with you. But Jesus says they're lost. Because their hearts are far from God. This is the kind of man that that Nicodemus is. He's one of these guys. These guys had significant influence on what was known as the Sanhedrin. We talked about this extensively in Acts as well. But just for a brief review, it was the ruling council of Israel. Uh, Many Pharisees on this group. It was kind of the equivalent, if you want to make it equivalent to something in our day, it's kind of like if you took the Supreme Court and the Senate in the U.S. and smashed them together. That's kind of how the Sanhedrin functioned. Okay? They, there were 70 of them, uh, uh, of the, the group, along with the high priest who presided over the whole crowd. So they debated things, they made decisions, and they had the power of enforcement. Uh, they had a police force you know, that could enforce whatever it was they ruled. So they really were the ruling crowd in Israel. So this man, Nicodemus, who we're introduced to in John chapter 3, this man who's going to come talk to Jesus, this is him. He's one of these guys. He's one of the Pharisees. He's one of the experts in the law. He's one of the teachers. He's one of the ruling class of his day. He's a very influential religious leader. And in verse 10, 
Jesus says to him, you're the teacher in Israel. He calls him the teacher, not just a teacher in Israel. But he uses the definite article, which indicates to us that this man was not just any old run-of-the-mill teacher in Israel. That he was, he, he, that when it came to teachers in Israel, he, he rose to the top. He was some of the cream that settled up high in the list. He wasn't just anyone. He was a Pharisee and a teacher but he was a teacher among teachers. He was the teachers. Now, whether that was Jesus' assessment of him or whether it was just the popular assessment of him, that, that people thought of him that way, in either case, you need to understand that this is, no, this is no lightweight that's come to Jesus. He is the leading religious teacher, scholar, perhaps, in the crowd that comes to Jesus to speak. This is who he is. He's a distinguished man. And this tells us what we need to know about him. Here's all you need to know about Nicodemus. He's a very religious man. He's a very outwardly moral man. He's an exceptionally theologically trained man. And he's one to whom religious leaders and the lay people alike looked up to. That is Nicodemus. If you were to look at him from the outside and you were to look within the context of his culture and you were to evaluate this man from the outside, you would say, if you were a Jew in his day, if there was anybody that was close to God, it was Nicodemus. If there was anybody that was a shoe-in for the kingdom of God, this man had to be it. He is the one to whom we, he's the one or the kind of one to whom we all look and we all want to be like him. In order to be close to God, because we see him as that. That is Nicodemus. John tells us more about this encounter. He tells us that there's something interesting about the timing of his visit, this kind of man. First of all, for this kind of man to even come to Jesus is shocking. We just, uh, by the way, it would be helpful for us to go back real quick and and mention this. Last week we talked about this uh, Jesus coming into the temple in Jerusalem and clearing out the temple. His kind of this, this... a rowdy act that, that just upsets the whole apple cart in the middle of the Passover and ticks off all the religious leaders, including the Pharisees. And um, this has apparently just taken place. So he's just upset their whole enterprise, their whole business in the middle of the most profitable day over Passover. The religious leaders are not happy with this man. So the fact that one of them would even come to Jesus at all with anything other than rebuke and scorn is remarkable. It says something to us about this man. I'm not sure what. But it says something. Um, But at the end of chapter 2, we did not look at this last week. There's a couple of verses that are important for us to understand chapter 3. Verse 23 through 25. Let me just read this to you because it sets up this encounter with Nicodemus. Right on the heels of Jesus clearing out the temple, uh, John tells us, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The way that's written is kind of complicated, but it's real simple what John is saying. Jesus was doing miracles. He cleared out that temple, and that was miraculous. But apparently he did some other things as well that clearly were miraculous. He did those things, and people saw those things and were drawn to him simply based on the miracles that he was doing. So they were drawn to him as somebody who could do miracles. If you saw somebody doing miracles, you might be drawn to him. And that's what John is saying. And he's saying, in some sense, they believed in him. But this is not a saving belief. And it's just they believed in what he was doing, that he must be from God in some way. But that's all they believed. You say, well, how do you know that? Because John tells us, 
Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust is the same word that's believed up uh, earlier. You could say it this way. Many people believed on him, but he didn't believe in them. Does that make sense? There were a lot of people who believed toward Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in their belief, if that makes any sense. How does Jesus not believe in their belief? He tells us at the end, he knew what? He knows what's in a man. Jesus could see into their hearts. And he knew they were just attracted to the show. This was not genuine faith birthed in their hearts. And what we see time and again with Jesus is when people are drawn just to the signs and to the externals, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. They come looking for more of that and he cuts it off. But to the genuine heart seeker, to the one who's coming looking for genuine answers, because they're desperate to find them, he always entrusts himself there. That's incidental to our text this morning. But this passage is not, because it relates, it takes us right into this Nicodemus. Jesus knows what's in a man. And so John tells us this, and then he introduces us to a man, Nicodemus. One who fits this category of those who in some way believed in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in him. Do you see the connection? So that's taking us to our text here. So this man comes to Jesus, this teacher, and he comes by night. Now there is endless theological speculation. I just don't get it on why Nicodemus comes by night. I mean, who knows why he came by night? Jesus doesn't tell us. I mean, John doesn't tell us why he came by night. It must not be important. Maybe he just didn't want to be associated with Jesus. Maybe he didn't want his peers to see him around Jesus. Maybe he was just busy during the daytime. I don't know why he came. He just came at night. We don't know what his motives are. But we know that this religious leader comes to Jesus at night, and he enters into a conversation. And he comes with a very simple question on his mind. Very simple question. And his question is this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this connects us back to the end of chapter 22. Why were all those people drawn to him? Because of the signs he was doing. And what does the first thing that comes out of Nicodemus' mouth is, we know that you're a teacher of God. How do we know that? Well, because of the the signs that you were doing. This identifies Nicodemus as being one of that crowd who was drawn by the signs. So here's Nicodemus' question. We know you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Greg, that's not a question. The medication has got you. It's a statement. But is it really? I don't think it is. Technically, it's a statement, but it's a statement that masks a question. Nicodemus isn't coming to make a statement. Nicodemus is coming to find out information. And we know this because there are some things that Nicodemus affirms and some things that he doesn't. What does he affirm in his statement that hides a question? Well, he says, first of all, Jesus, I affirm that you're a teacher, right? Uh, Jesus, you're a teacher. Now, he says we. Uh, I love how he says we because, you know, people, when they have these kinds of confrontational, they like to use we, right? Right? Have you ever noticed that? It's not just me that wants to know. It's we. There's more than just me. I'm just kind of representing the crowd here, you know? I used to run into this all the time, particularly in those conflict seasons in church life. If you ever go through one of those and somebody has a complaint and they want to express it to you as the pastor, they never come and say, here is my complaint. It's always, we think, you know, there's always a we. And um, they always present it like there's a crowd. You know, there's a crowd and, and I'm just one of the crowd and I just represent the crowd. And here's what we think. I learned early on you've got to explore we. Usually it's like we means that person and their spouse and a friend. And that's it, you know. Um, 
And usually the friend isn't even in on it. So that may be what Nicodemus is doing here. You know, he's just hiding behind the crowd. There's some things that we want to talk about. But really, I don't know, Nicodemus, I think, wants to know these things too. He says, here's what we know, Jesus. We know you're a teacher. Incidentally, so was Nicodemus. He says something else we know about you that we affirm about you, Jesus. You're, you're from God. We, we know that you're a teacher and, and you're from God. Incidentally, that's something else that Nicodemus also thought of whom? Of himself. So, so far, Nicodemus affirms, hey, we're on the same level here. You're a teacher. I'm a teacher. You're from God. I'm from God. Hey, you're not a bad guy. That's Nicodemus. I, you're not a bad guy here. You're, you're, you're like me. We're on the same plane. And the evidence for that is we've seen you do some awesome miracles. That's how we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. But that's where the affirmation stops. What does Nicodemus not affirm? Well, everything else we've seen in John chapter 1 and chapter 2 about Jesus. He does not affirm that he's the Messiah. He does not affirm that he's God in flesh. He does not affirm that he had the authority to do what he just did in the temple. He stops at an affirmation of we're on the same page here. I'm a teacher, you're a teacher. I'm from God, you're from God. So this is what tells me there's a question behind this. Nicodemus' statement is really an implied question. He's saying, here's some things we know about you, but you seem to be more than what we know. Who are you really? That's what Nicodemus wants to know, right? It's not just let's have a conversation. He wants to know something. I I know some things about you, but it seems that there's more to be known than what I know. Who are you really? That's Nicodemus' issue. He wants to know. It's a very diplomatic way of trying to extract a little more information from Jesus. Nicodemus comes as a diplomat on behalf of himself and maybe some of his colleagues, maybe, or maybe just him and his spouse. I don't know. And they want to find out who is Jesus, more about his identity. Just a couple of quick things to note about his approach. Number one, it's amicable. It's a nice approach. Nicodemus is not rude. He's not offensive, right? This is not an offensive come at Jesus. Based on what Jesus has just recently done, that's impressive. It may be a bit condescending because Nicodemus and Jesus are not on the same page, right? They are not equivalents. We'll find this out soon. So it may be a little condescending to some degree for him to approach Jesus, but it's not confrontational. Nicodemus seems to be coming in a good spirit here to talk to Jesus, no matter what his motives might be. So this is all, this is all Nicodemus gets out of his mouth, and Jesus And Jesus answered him. You say, how do you know Nicodemus asked a question? Because John said Jesus answered him. That's right. You don't answer unless someone asks a question, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't think you buy that. But in verse 3, that's what John tells us. Jesus answered him. And you're not going to believe what Jesus says to this man in response to this simple statement hiding a question. He says something shocking, so shocking that this man would have been blown absolutely away. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is not interested in debating his identity with this man. Because Jesus knows what's in his heart. He doesn't deal with what this man wants to talk about. He deals with what this man needs to talk about. And doesn't even know he needs to talk about it. And Jesus pierces right to the heart of this man's life. And he goes straight to the heart of the matter. And he rocks Nicodemus to the core. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you can catch this from the text, but we cannot underestimate the shock value that this would have had with Nicodemus. 
This would have shocked him to death to hear this answer from Jesus. I don't know what Nicodemus expected when he asked Jesus that question, but I know it was not this, what he got. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't even say, thank you, Nicodemus, for coming to me in a nice way. He doesn't even say, thanks, Nicodemus, for the kind affirmation. He says, Nicodemus, unless a man's born again, he won't see the kingdom of God. What does this mean, born again? It's the first time we run into this. When I was a kid, I always heard that term. Did you always hear that? People call themselves a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. I heard that all the time. You need to be born again. I never knew what that meant, really, when I was a kid. But um, it is in the Bible, oddly enough. Here it is. It's the first time we see it in the New Testament. Jesus says it. And he uses it in context with saying, this is the thing that is necessary for seeing the kingdom of God. Do you want to see the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Jesus says you don't need moral reformation. What you need is to be born again. You don't need just a better you. You need a what? An altogether new you. You don't need to pick up some new habits and get rid of some old ones. You need to totally be recreated again. Completely. It's not a better life that you need. It's a new life that you need. It's like what you need is like being born all over again. What was there of you before you were born? Well, not much. And that has to happen all over again, Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God. The theological term for what Jesus is talking about is the word regeneration. Regeneration. And to give you a theological definition, uh, because you would need this, is this. Regeneration is the act of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. We'll unpack it. The act of God by which he imparts eternal life to those who are dead in their sin, thus making them his children. That's regeneration. That's what it means, technically, to be born again. You want to write that down. It is an act of God. Okay? This, we get this from the idea to be born. Um, how many of you here have been born? Okay, that's my way of finding out if you're awake. Everyone should have raised their hand. Somewhere, somehow, you were born. How many of you birthed yourself? No hand should have gone up on that. If you did... I really want to talk to you afterwards. Now, you were born by your mother. Your father had something to do with it. Your mother gave birth. You were born. Somebody else birthed you. You had nothing to do with your own birth. You, you just, you were, you were a passive participant to some degree, right? You were born. Regeneration is the act of God, God, the act of God by which He births us or He imparts eternal life. He gives us new life. He gives us eternal life. He, 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 he causes us to be born again in some sense. And what kind of people does He do that to? To dead people. To people who are dead. And dead people, once again. Now, I know that you've all been born, but I trust that you're not dead, right? Because you're moving and breathing, apparently. You may be sleeping, but you're not dead. But in some sense... Spiritually, one has to be born by some power beyond ourselves, and it has to happen to us when we were dead. That's what Jesus is saying. And in doing so, we become God's children. That is regeneration. That is what it means to be born again, simply put. Let's unpack that a bit. We can't birth ourselves. That's the key issue here. And, and, and Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the way into God's kingdom is not a way that's worked out by men. Do you see that? 
You can't work this out on your own, Nicodemus. You can't operate yourself in. You can't work your way in. You can't manipulate your way into God's kingdom. You have to be born into it. And you can't birth yourself. You have to be regenerated. And if this doesn't happen, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? Let me give you another theological definition. I promise it's the last one. What is the kingdom of God? John MacArthur defines it this way. The spiritual realm where those who've been born again, that is those who've been regenerated uh, by divine power through faith, now live under the rulership of God mediated through his son. Simply put, when a person is born again, when he is regenerated, he becomes not only a citizen of the nation in which he lives, but he instantly becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that relates to the quality of life that he lives right now. And it also relates to his eternal life in heaven with God beyond this point. In other words, the, when, I, when I become born again, when I become a Christian, I become part of God's kingdom. And that relates to the quality of my life now and my eternal life in heaven with him when I'm dead. That's all encompassed in this the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless a man is regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He does not make it into God's kingdom. And you know what Nicodemus had thought his whole life? His whole life, Nicodemus has thought, he's thought that all Jews get admitted into God's kingdom. Because they're Jews. That's what, that's what the Judaism of his day taught. That we are of Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. We are the Israelites. We are God's chosen people. God has uniquely chosen us and uniquely called us. We are His people. His covenant people. We're of Abraham. As long as we are obedient to God and as long as we go through the sacrifices and as long as we keep the law, we are going assuredly into God's kingdom. We have a slot reserved. He's thought this his whole life. And here Jesus says to him in one sentence, what you've believed your whole life is not true. It's not true. He says, more pointedly, Nicodemus, not only is it not true that all Jews are not assured a space in God's kingdom, Nicodemus, you a Pharisee, a leader among Jews, are not assured a spot in God's kingdom. You will not see it unless you're born again. You won't see it. That had to have shocked this man off of his rocker, even though he didn't have a rocker. It must have shocked him to the core. It must have. It must have blown him away. Jesus comes to him in his first statement. He says, unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. There's only one way to see the kingdom of God, and that's by being born again. That's the only way. No matter how religiously active somebody is, no matter how morally they they behave on the outside, no matter how theologically astute they are, no matter how much other people look up to them as being a religious leader, none of that matters. If you are not born again, you don't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you're not born again. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. Why is it so shocking? Well, it's shocking because of what he believes. He believes he's from Abraham. He believes he's an Israelite. He's guaranteed a spot in God's kingdom. He's a teacher. He thinks surely that merits something. 
It's not just that he believes these things, but he's been a leading teacher propagating these beliefs to other people and leading them to believe them. And think about why he came to Jesus to begin with. This man just comes to try and discern Jesus' identity before God. He doesn't come to Jesus to sort out his own identity before God, does he? But boy, Jesus turns this conversation around in a hurry. And he goes from, let's not talk about my identity. That's not what matters. What matters is where do you stand before God? And let me tell you where you stand. You stand outside his kingdom, Nicodemus. That's what happens in one sentence here. He wasn't coming to Jesus because he doubted where he stood with God. Not at all. He was certain where he stood with God. He had no doubt in his mind until Jesus says, you must be born again. And that rocks him to the core. Nicodemus, you're going to hell if something doesn't change. To the most religious man in the Jewish community. Don't you love how Jesus soft pedals the gospel? I love that, don't you? How he just makes it nice and easy for Nicodemus, you know. Let's not make this thing too hard or confrontational. Let's not worry about hurting this man's feelings. Let's just, let's soften the ride into the kingdom for this man, Nicodemus. Is that how Jesus comes at this thing? Oh, no. Oh, no. Maybe there's a time for that. Maybe, I don't know. This day was not the time. And Nicodemus is so stunned, he doesn't know what to say. And here's what he says. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now look, this Nicodemus is not confused. Nicodemus is not a fool. He's not a stupid man. He's theologically trained. This is not, he doesn't really believe that Jesus is saying, I'm an old man, I need to go find my mom, crawl back up in her womb and be born again, right? He doesn't believe this. That's not what he's asking. What he's, what he's doing is he's reacting incredulously to what Jesus has just said to him. And he's saying, in, in essence... It's impossible. It's impossible. What you've just said is not possible. It's as impossible as me going back and crawling up into my mother and being born again. I, it can't happen. I reject this. It's, a, it's an outright rejection of what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> he's so stunned. I mean, he's just so stunned. He's, it, it can't be true. This cannot be true. And so Jesus explains further. Here's what he says. Truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus here restates what he initially said. I should have put this on a slide for you. Verse 3 and verse 5 side by side. In verse 3, he says the first time, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The second time... He says, unless one is born of what? He doesn't say born again. He says born of water and spirit. He cannot not see the kingdom of God, but enter the kingdom of God. Okay, just quickly, we don't need to deal with the theology of this. He's saying the same thing in both cases. He's putting a parallel together. So in other words, to be born again is the same thing as being born of the Spirit and water. To see the kingdom of God is the same as to enter the kingdom of God in this conversation, okay? He's saying the same thing. He's just elaborating on it a little bit. Not talking about two different things. That's all you need to know about that. What does he mean by saying one must be born of water and Spirit? We could spend a whole sermon on this, but we won't. Uh, And boy, I've got like, I I think probably nine commentaries. I was talking to Pastor Frank about this this morning. Um, And and it's amazing 
how many conjectures there are. What does Jesus mean by water and spirit here? Everything from he means, um, it's, it's semi-clear what he means by spirit. He's born of the spirit of God. What does he mean by water? What is this water issue? How does a man born with water? Uh, there are denominations, there are folks who say that the reference here is baptism. That, that this is where they anchor a theology that says one has to be baptized to be saved. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense in this context, <clears throat> but it is one of the common misunderstandings <clears throat> of this passage. Some think it's talking about, you know, the amniotic fluid around this birthing sack in a human being, and he's just talking about giving birth to a human being. That's the kind of watery birth that he's talking about here. Um, and, and there's, you know, maybe he's talking about John the Baptist and, and his his baptism. Maybe he's talking about all these other things. Look. <clears throat> I think it's really clear what he means by water and spirit. And we can go back to the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, to see the answer. And you say, why are you sure that this is the answer? Because as this thing moves along, we won't have time to play it out. But it's clear that Jesus thinks Nicodemus should understand this, right? It's clear that he thinks Nicodemus, from his study of the Old Testament, should understand what he's talking about here. Because he says to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't what? And you don't understand these things? The idea is, you should know this, Nicodemus. It was already there. So, he shouldn't be talking about baptism because Jesus hasn't even been crucified and resurrected and baptism, Christian baptism, hasn't even arisen yet. So that would have no meaning to Nicodemus. He's got to be talking about something that's already been explained in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So Ezekiel 36 seems to be the location of what Jesus has in mind. Verses 24 through 27. Here the prophet is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's prophesying about what God is going to do when he returns his people from exile, but the implications of what he's saying have far more reaching effects than just the exile. He's talking ultimately about what God is going to do in his new people, the church, when the Messiah comes. Here's what he says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I'll bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel in his day, is talking about what God's going to do in return from exile. But he maybe he does or maybe he doesn't know it. But God is talking about ultimately here, prophesying about what he is ultimately going to be doing in the regenerating of a people for himself in the New Testament through the Messiah, Jesus. This is He is explaining in Ezekiel chapter 36 what it means to be born again. And there are two concepts that he lays out that are critical to understanding what it means to be born again. And these two concepts make sense of spirit and water. The two concepts are cleansing and transformation. That's what he's saying. What does every lost person need in order to be born again? He needs to be cleansed and he needs to be transformed. He needs to be cleansed. That is, he needs to be washed from his sin. He needs to be washed from his guilt. He needs to be cleansed from all the filth of sin in his life. That needs to be washed away. But that's not enough. Because if that's all that happens to a lost, dead sinner, he will continue to act out on his lost, dead sinfulness, and he will just create new sin, new uncleanness. No, he needs to be cleansed from his sin. He needs to be cleansed from his darkness and his defiled heart and his rebellion against God. But he needs something else. He needs to be transformed into a new person who behaves differently and who loves differently and who acts differently and who has different passions 
who has a new heart. He has to be cleansed from the old and he has to be reborn or transformed into a new person. The cleansing relates to the water. See, I will sprinkle you clean. Water did that. It was a good analogy of that. We see in the Old Testament a lot. But it's not just that I'll sprinkle you clean. But what does he say I'll do? On the inside, I will remove what? What is he going to remove? I'm going to remove your stony heart. Your stone heart. What does a stone heart represent? I mean, think about that. A heart made of stone. What is he saying about that? It's hard. It's dead. It's cold. It's lifeless. It's unfeeling. It's unmoved. It's cold toward God is what he's saying. He's saying that's what you have. That's what every human being has. A stone cold heart towards God. And God is saying, I, I sovereignly will reach in and remove that cold, stone, dead, unresponsive heart. And I will replace it with what? A heart of flesh. What does he mean by a heart of flesh? Well, it's just a contrast to stone. A soft heart. A a heart that's alive and responsive to me. A heart that beats in conjunction with who I am. It's a new heart. I'll take out your old and I'll give you a new. It's a picture of being born again. I'll kill off your old dead life and I'll give you a new heart, a new life. I'll rebirth you. A new person with new passions. A new inner being, if you will. This is what Jesus is referring to. He said, Nicodemus, you need to understand spirit and water. Unless this happens... You will not see the kingdom of heaven. And that's shocking to a man who his whole life has looked at all this outward stuff to get him into the kingdom of God. And to hear, not only have I gotten it all wrong, not only have I misled all these people, but right as of this moment, I am going to hell because I'm not born again. That is what Jesus said to this man. What does John want us to see in this? Why does this matter to you and I? What is John trying to communicate that advances the ball in your life and my life towards believing in Jesus and towards gaining eternal life? What do we need to, what what concepts do we need to understand from this in order that we might be in different shape than Nicodemus was in that day, in order that we might be born again? Let me just lay these out to you because I think they're obvious. The first thing John wants us to see is a few things about lost people. Just some simple concepts about lost people. Every lost person, every human being that is born into this world qualifies as lost. And we need to know something about every one of them. He simply tells us they are not, they are, they are flesh, not spirit. And what he means by that, he says what's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. It seems kind of mystical, but he's saying there's two kinds of birth. You're born a human being. You're born flesh. And you live on a material level. You live a human life. A fleshly life. You pursue your own ends. You pursue your own desires. You live largely for yourself and largely in rebellion for God. You're born of the flesh. You live for the flesh. But he says there's another kind of birth. A spiritual birth that's different. A spiritual birth that has to take place inside of you. You have to be born again spiritually. And that's the only way to live spiritually. And lost people are not spirit. They're simply flesh. Our first birth makes us alive to our human fathers. Our second birth makes us alive to whom? Our heavenly father. Our first birth makes us alive to human endeavors. Our second birth makes us alive to godly endeavors. Our first life introduces us to human passions and desires. 
Our second birth introduces us to godly passions and godly desires. They're birthed into us. It's two different things. Flesh does not produce spiritual life. All lost people are flesh. The second thing we need to know is that they're truly living dead people. (laughs) You could say lost people are zombies. That's popular these days. Zombie movies. They're a hit, I think. Um, But he's, he's actually saying here, lost people... Although alive, they're dead. And it's interesting, isn't it? They're alive in the flesh, but spiritually they're dead. That's what Jesus and John would want us to know. There's a sense in which Nicodemus was alive, right? And how do we know that? Well, he's talking and he's breathing and he's mo- kind of like you. you. You know, you're moving, you're breathing. I know you're alive. But apparently Jesus thinks in some sense this man is dead. He's alive and at the same time he's dead. Spiritually, he's dead. Oh, he's very religious. He's very, very active religiously. He's very moral. He's very theological. And yet he's spiritually dead. And Jesus says, what you need, man, is not a better life or more religion. You need to be born again. Because you're dead. Dead people can't decide to birth themselves. They can't discipline a new life into their own life. They can't make themselves come alive. And just like Nicodemus, every lost person is dead in their sin and cannot do anything about that condition on their own. That's what we need to know about lost people. He also wants us to know that they won't enter the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Lost people do not enter the kingdom of God. This is hard to swallow in Nicodemus' day. It's hard to swallow in our day. Uh, Pastor Frank and I have the unfortunate privilege of doing people's funerals rather often. And I will tell you this, people don't believe this. Do they, Pastor Frank? They do not believe that lost people won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They do not believe that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Because every funeral I do, there's some way they want to try and explain why this person, no matter how they've lived, no matter what evidence is in their life, is somehow in the kingdom of God. We see it all the time. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom. Lost people do not go to heaven. They do not inherit eternal life. And this must have terrified Nicodemus because all he does is come along and say, Jesus, I'm convinced you're a teacher from God. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, lost people go to hell and you're lost. And he wants us to see something else about lost people, that their religious activities are useless. This man has given his life to religion and Jesus has blown that up in a nuclear blast that this man never saw coming. Your whole life, man, has been given to religious activity and it has not advanced the ball one inch toward the kingdom of God for you. If anything, it's keeping you out. We need to know that about lost people. Because if you qualify as a lost person until you know that, it's very difficult to be saved. That's what John wants us to know. What else does he want us to know about? Something about lost people. He wants us to know it's humanly impossible to enter the kingdom of God. This is the position he puts Nicodemus in. He puts Nicodemus in a position where there is no way for him to get into the kingdom of God. Do you see how he does this? I mean, this is the way he lays it out. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, that has to happen outside of you. It is humanly impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying to him. It's humanly impossible for you to get into God's kingdom, Nicodemus. Absolutely impossible. And this is why it's so shocking. To tell a man you're going to hell and you're outside of the kingdom of God is one thing. To say you're out there and there's nothing you can do to get in is worse. 
And you know, the Bible makes this abundantly clear. There's nothing humanly possible that we can do to get into God's kingdom. It's hard to swallow. Can a man in love with his money get into the kingdom of God? Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to do what? To go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It can't. It's impossible. Can a natural man welcome the things of God? No. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of God or the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's not possible for a natural-minded man to welcome the things of God. Can the human mind, as far as what develops by human processes, can it possibly please God? Romans chapter 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in flesh can't please God. Can a human mind please God naturally? It's impossible. Can people who were born dead in this sin transform themselves in order to enter the kingdom of God? Jeremiah chapter 13, Jeremiah writes, Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away his spots? Neither can you start doing good, for you've always done evil. Listen, listen. Can a man enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born again? It's impossible. He cannot. Do you feel the shock of what Jesus is requiring of this man, Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you humanly cannot do that to yourself there's no way we cannot change the color of our skin a leopard cannot change his spots a camel cannot possibly go through the eye of a needle a natural man cannot possibly welcome the spiritual things the mindset of a fallen man cannot possibly please god and old men can't be born again it's humanly impossible he wants us to know that He wants us to feel the shock of that. He wants us to know that when you were lost, you were adrift at sea and you're absolutely hopeless and there's nothing you can do and the only hope you have is that God act on your behalf and do for you what you possibly cannot do for yourself. It's the only way. He wants us to see something else. He wants us to see that our salvation hangs solely on the freedom and will of God. This is hard to swallow. That our salvation hangs solely on the freedom and will of God. He is saying to Nicodemus, you can't save yourselves by any means. You're spiritually dead. You're by nature a child of wrath. Your only hope is for someone outside of you, that being God, to do something for you. You are totally dependent upon the Spirit of God, and He can't be controlled or manipulated. That's what He's saying. He's like the wind. Did you catch that? He's like the wind, the Holy Spirit. is. He blows where He wants to. We don't know why He comes and why He goes or what He's doing. We can't control Him. We can't manipulate Him. He just blows where He wants to. And we see the results when He does it. That's what He says. Nicodemus, you are solely at God's mercy. And apart from God acting on your behalf, you will die. And you will die outside of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter what religious rituals you go through. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you memorize. It doesn't matter how many people look up to you. None of those things matter. They don't get you any closer. You must be what? Say it with me. Born again. God must rebirth you 
that would have rattled this man to his core and it should rattle us to ours as well. Because if Nicodemus is hopeless, so are we. Because if Nicodemus can't earn his way into the kingdom of God, neither can you and I. Because if Nicodemus is completely at God's mercy for his salvation, so are we. Because if, if this man, this religious man, was this desperate and this helpless and he's this doomed, so are we. And until Nicodemus realizes that, he'll remain lost. And until we realize it, so will we. That's what Jesus is saying. And this should shock American Christians in the year 2014 as much as it shocked Nicodemus in the first century. Because this is not the message that the Christian church has been preaching in my lifetime. I don't know about yours. No, no, no. Here's what I've heard my whole life. One of three variations. Here's what it means to be born again. To be born again means to just add Jesus onto your life. It means just, just say a prayer. It means just believe in Jesus. It means just, just affirm Jesus and add Him onto your life and just keep on living your life as it is. And Jesus will take you just the way you are. You don't need to do anything. Just believe in Jesus and just keep on living. That's what it means to be born again. Just affirm the facts about who He is. Say a little prayer and you're in. That's what it means to be born again. That's what I heard growing up. Still preached all over the place. A variation of that is what it means to be born again is just to change your behavior. It's just to go and, and kind of shave off all your bad habits and all those things you do that you know are wrong. Quit doing them and start doing what? Well, good things. You know, quit cussing and smoking and boozing it up and sexing it up and doing all this stuff that you know you ought not do. Quit doing all that and quit hanging around people who do. And start being a good guy or be a good gal. Tell the truth. You know, don't do all that bad stuff. Start doing good things. Be kind to people. Be nice. Live a good life. Be good to your family. So on and so forth. Just change your behavior. Quit doing the bad stuff and start doing good things. That's what it means to be born again. Obey the Bible. Just do what God says you should do. It's not what it means to be born again. Third variation I've heard is this. Just become religious. That's what it means to be born again. You start going to church. Start going to church, hanging around church people. Boy, that'll get you in trouble. I'm a pastor. I'll tell you right out. That'll get you in trouble. Become religious. Go to church. Start hanging around church people. Get involved and entrench in a church culture. You know, start getting in small groups and in home fellowships and start learning the Bible. Start absorbing all that stuff. And absorb it long enough to where you can teach other people about it. Maybe you'll become a teacher. Maybe you'll lead in the nursery. Maybe you'll serve somewhere in church life. Maybe you'll go on mission trips somewhere. Maybe you'll become a teacher that teaches other people. And who knows, maybe one day you'll become a pastor and you'll be very religious at that point. That must be what it means to be born again can do all of those things and not be born again, Jesus said. To be born again has nothing to do with changing your behavior, becoming religious, or simply connecting Jesus onto your already crowded life. Jesus is blowing all of that out of the water right now. And he's saying you must be born again. There are a lot of people in our world and churches, Christian churches in our culture, who would be just as shocked as Nicodemus to hear that. Maybe you are this morning. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? Guys, if you'll be patient with me for just five minutes, I know it's late. Can you hang on for five? If you can't leave, I won't be offended, I promise. He says, how can these things be? How can these, what is, what is this man's response? Verses 9 through 12, just put that whole passage up there for me, Ben. What is Nicodemus' response at the end of this? You get it because I've underlined it. How can this be? 
He's so blown away. It's not possible. This can't be true. You go on. Jesus says, you didn't receive our testimony and you don't believe. Jesus knows this man's heart, doesn't he? And Nicodemus does not believe it. He does not receive it. He does not accept it. And he does not believe it. He is blown away. And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Nicodemus, you ought to know this. And you don't. Nicodemus, you don't know these things. You don't understand them. You don't believe them. Because you have not been, what? Born again. Because God has not regenerated your heart. He has not given you new life. And you can't get it. And you don't get it. It has not happened. And sadly, he's right. He does not believe. He is not born again. And unless something changes in his life, he will remain outside of the kingdom of God. Praise God we know the end of the story for Nicodemus. He is ultimately born again. And he ultimately does get into the kingdom of God. But as of this encounter, he's not there. Let me read verses 13 through 15 because we need to bring this to a conclusion here. Jesus says on the right in the same conversation, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. I knew I wouldn't have time to cover this thoroughly this morning. But I so desperately want you to see you cannot disconnect this from everything else that's been said this morning. Or you will get the wrong conclusion. Jesus talks to this man and he totally breaks down his whole theological grid that's built on externals. And he says that there's only one way for you to get in, man. It's to be born again and you can't do it for yourself. You are outside of the kingdom of God. And unless God rebirths you out of his own good pleasure and his sovereign will, you cannot get into the kingdom of God. You are locked out, Nicodemus. But in the very same breath, He says this to Nicodemus. Listen, you need to understand, Nicodemus. Let me give you one last illustration from the Old Testament. Remember Moses and the grumbling Israelites in the Old Testament? God gets sick of the grumbling, so he sends poisonous vipers to bite a bunch of them and kill them off as a judgment. And yet in the midst of that judgment, God tells Moses, you make this this bronze serpent and you hold it up on a pole and you tell my people if they will simply do what? Look up to that serpent, which was another way of saying look up to him. In the midst of their judgment, I will do what? I'll save them. I'll rescue them. You remember that, Nicodemus? You remember that story? How in the midst of my destroying my people, I gave them this opportunity. I told them there's still hope. If you just look to me, you'll find rescue. Jesus reminds him of that incident. He says this. Listen, Moses, just as Moses lifted up that serpent, so I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up. And whoever believes in me will have eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, it's not completely hopeless for you. Something is yet to happen. I'm going I'm to die. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And just like that serpent in the wilderness, if you will look to me, if you will look to me, you'll be born again. God will rebirth you. Now, there's great debate about the timing of which happens first. We don't have time for that this morning. But I just want to state the last thing I think John wants us to understand because in our list of things that John wants us to understand, we've seen something about lost people. We've seen it's impossible for a lost man to get into the kingdom of God. We've seen that we're completely at the mercy of God to be born again. But the last thing we need to see is that fourth point, Ben, if you will. And that's this. 
There is no new life apart from Jesus. No new life apart. That's what Jesus is saying. All this I've told you is true, Nicodemus. But that's not all there is to know. I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to give my life on a cross. And that cannot be separated. And that cannot be separated from your regeneration. If you will look to me, if you will look to me, you will find rescue. He will be, God will, He will rebirth you. In fact, He will rebirth you before you're even able to look at me. And somehow these two things happen almost simultaneously to where you can't discern which one comes first, but they're both necessary. And that's the point Jesus is making. A person does not enter the kingdom of God except that God birthed them again. They also do not see eternal life unless they look to the Son. Both of those things are true. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're married together in, in, in an event that happens at one and the same time. And I wish I had more time to unpack that for you. We cannot separate regeneration from faith in Jesus. First John chapter 5, verse 4. Let me give you two verses and then give you a sentence and we're done. For everyone who has been born of God, that's what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, overcomes the world. This is the victory that, overcame, or that overcomes the world. What? So answer this question. Who has overcome the world? Everyone who has been... Born again. Who has victory that overcomes the world? Or what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Is John confused? Are you? He marries these two concepts together. At one and the same time, we must be born again. And at one and the same time, we must place our faith in Jesus. They can't separate. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he goes on to say the same thing. Look at what he says. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. How did we get eternal life? Did we earn it? Did we work our way in? Did we believe our way in? No. God gave it to us. And what is this life that He gave us? Who has it? Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. If a person is born again, it's because God sovereignly regenerates them. But He never does that apart from faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. When a man or a woman is born again, the first thing that happens in every case is faith in Christ is awakened. And they happen so simultaneously that you cannot discern timing one from the other. They are married together. To be born again is for God to... Take your dead stone heart and remove it and replace it with a soft heart that's soft to Him. And to replace it not just with a soft heart, but with His Holy Spirit. And instantly faith in Christ is birthed and a new life is given to you. That is what it means to be born again. John Piper drills this down to one sentence. And you'll say, if you just gave us the sentence an hour ago, we could already be done with lunch. This is what he says, and it's brilliant. What does it mean to be born again? In regeneration, that is being born again, the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives us new spiritual life. How? By connecting us with Jesus Christ through faith. Because Jesus is life. That's it. That's what it means to be born again. But what does that mean to you? To me? It means there are some things that are hard for us to deal with in our culture where we think we can just earn everything. 
What if we think we're just good enough, we'll get into heaven? Or think if we just add some good behaviors and remove some bad habits, that that's all we need to be a Christian? If we just go to church and hang around church people and be good or even become very religious, that that's how we get in the kingdom of God? That needs to be shattered in your mind this morning. There's only one way for you to see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God, and that's that you be born again. That's it. That God do supernaturally for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so my call to you, the, how does that look? what does that look like from your perspective? It looks like faith in Jesus. And so my call to you this morning is this. Jesus Christ who stood before Nicodemus is the same Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross where he was lifted up shedding his blood for your sin. And this morning, if you recognize, if you realize, if if God has opened your eyes to the reality that you are hopeless to enter his kingdom apart from him, if you realize that this morning, and you feel the dread of that this morning, and you feel the doom of that this morning, and you feel the weight of that this morning, there's only one response possible. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to His blood. And believe on Him. Embrace Him by faith and receive from Him what you could never earn for yourself. And yet what He so graciously is willing to give you if you'll come to Him on those terms. And if you'll do that, you'll find yourself walking out of here newly born, regenerated. Someone who will see and enter the kingdom of God. Oh, dear God, that is what we all want. It is what we all want. We want to see your kingdom. We want to enter it. We want to live our lives in such a way that we have confidence that that is possible and that it's reality. And yet, Lord, we have propped our spiritual lives up just like Nicodemus and the Pharisees on so many faulty foundations. Many, even in this room, have believed that if they're just a good person, that that makes them Christian. Some have even believed that just by coming here today and becoming religious and doing religious things, that that makes them a Christian. Some have believed, Lord, that just because they're in a Christian family and they attach themselves to simple belief in Jesus or they believe in God, that that's enough. And I pray this morning, Lord, you would shatter those illusions, shatter them like you shattered them for Nicodemus and help them to see that they must be born again, that there is no other way to enter your kingdom. And that that begins by realizing their absolute, absolute inability to save themselves and their desperate hope that only you could save them. Lord Jesus, by what you've done on the cross, call them to look to you today. Help them to be saved. Regenerate. Make someone in this place born again like you did for Nicodemus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.